The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Maybe you've engaged in some activity that as soon as you'd done it, you knew that God would strongly disapprove. Maybe that's you right at the moment. Or maybe you know someone for whom that is the case. Someone who has fallen to the temptations of the world, the flesh or the devil. God suddenly feels distance. Prayers seem to go no further than the ceiling. A guilt sits in and guilt leads to despair and despair stops prayer. Many of God's people become sort of awkward and superficial. The Bible becomes condemning rather than comforting. The once vibrant spiritual life seems to be sucked into a spiritual black hole and there appears no way out. No light, no hope, no joy, just blackness and despair. What do you say to someone who's feeling like that? Or what would you have liked someone to have said to you when you were feeling like that? Or what would you like to hear this morning if that's you? Or friends, I think these verses this morning from 1 John bring us hope, a liberating hope, which I think is a major thing that we as Christians lack when we're in the spiritual black hole. And what we'll see is that this passage teaches not only the reality that we as Christians do and will continue to sin, but more importantly, it shows us how we as Christians should respond if we do sin and sort of get out of the spiritual black hole. And I'll tell you right from the front, the main point that John is trying to drive home to us in these verses, he says that the right response to sin as a Christian, the right response to sin is to confess it and trust in the completed work of Jesus for forgiveness. It's a really important point, and I don't want you to miss it, that as Christians, the right response to sin is to confess it and to trust in the completed work of Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins. For if we confess our sins, God promises to always forgive them. Always. And by taking this truth on board, we can help not only ourselves, but our fellow sisters and brothers in their struggle with sin. But first, John tells us our problem in verses 8 and 10 before he tells us the solution. And he says that despite the glorious changes that the gospel brings about in us as it sets us on a trajectory of being transformed into the image of Christ, John says the reality is that even as believers in Christ, we still sin and are often blind to it. You see it there in verses 8 and 10. See, verse 8, 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. I mean, sin in the life of us as believers is not only a reality, but in fact is a far bigger problem than we even realise. In verse 8, John says that if anyone claims that they have no sin to deal with in their life, they are are self-deceived. And this sort of issue of of self-deception is not just sort of a one-off thing. He's talking about an ongoing habit, a habitual thing that we might do, denying sin in our lives. And I thought, how? I don't think I need to convince you, as I don't need to convince me, that we are sinful. So how can we actually deny that we are? How can we deny sin? Well, the commentaries talk about different ways, but I'll tell you what I think a big way is. And that is simply that when we do something sinful, we convince ourselves that it isn't actually sinful. We call something that is sin, not sin. For example, we've seen the stories of Christian leaders who have gauged in child sexual abuse and say that it's okay when in fact it's abhorrent to God and brings his strong condemnation. Or you know, people who deny the Bible's clear teaching that marriage is between a man and a woman. People who call themselves Christians denying the Bible's teaching. I think of a couple, uh, came to me, uh, they'd both uh, been involved in churches and they both left their spouses and started living together and after a while eventually sort of married uh, and turned up at church. And they were telling me this and trying to justify it because they said they'd come from bad marriages. I said, well the Bible calls it sin went pretty quiet at that point. You see, society tends to either deny sin or rationalise it, doesn't it? Plenty of churches these days also don't talk about sin. They sort of put it down to blame their parents or a person's background or unfortunate circumstances or explained away sort of as an error of judgement. You know when you hear politicians talking about error of judgement? It's just sin. And to, you know, to claim that there is such thing as God and that there is a moral standard by which we are all held to invites harsh social disapproval. In our culture, which no longer believes in absolute truth or absolute morality, we said it this week in the NRL, you know, those players, your team, Ian, Manly, those Christian players who wouldn't wear the pride jersey and the backlash they have received by saying that there is such thing as right and wrong. So friends, just at this point, how do we apply this? Well, I think simply, don't let us ever make the mistake of calling something that is sin, not sin. Don't try and rationalise sin in our lives. Oh, it's not that bad. That we can sort of you know, God can just sort of overlook that, or that it's not sin at all, that it's acceptable to him even. Because if we do that, verse 10 tells us, 
that what we are in fact doing is calling God a liar and demonstrating that his word is not in us. You see it there in verse 10. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And I've just been sort of reflecting on and pondering this week and what that sort of phrase in verse 10, um, his word is not in us, means. I'll tell you what I've come up with anyway. I think basically what John is saying that if anyone sort of calls themselves a Christian or even thinks they are a Christian but willfully and persistently engage in sinful behaviour, it shows really that they're not truly regenerate, that they're in fact not genuine Christians. When Jesus says you know a tree by its fruit, a good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree produces bad fruit. And over time, when you're looking at someone, if you, you see a persistent sinful rebellion towards God, it's showing something, isn't it? Sure, as Christians we can sin and be disobedient for a period of time, but God brings us back and we have the fruit of repentance. But if we remain in that, then it just shows that our hearts are hard towards God. That we are far from him and in desperate need of the gospel. And so friends, to, to recap, sin is a problem for everyone whether we are unbelievers or believers. We will continue to sin as Christians, but like trying to run a marathon in snow gear, it slows us down. And we get all tangled up. And like trying to eat a, a tasty meal with a blocked nose, we, we don't experience the, the joy, the enjoyment. The Christian life goes from being coloured to grayscale, if you like. And John is saying here that the sin is wrong and is to be avoided at all costs by us as Christians. And yet the Apostle John is a realist and he, he knows that his readers, including us today, still sin. And so he writes in verse 1 of chapter 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And you know, John, knowing that Christians will sin, he tells us two things to do when we do. He says we're to confess it and we're to trust in Jesus' finished work. We're to confess the sin and then trust in Jesus' finished work. First, confess it. Again, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John says, look, the opposite to denying sin is to confess it. We're either going to do one or the other. To make ongoing progress as Christians, we need to consistently and regularly come before God, confess our sins, and then claim the blood of Jesus for forgiveness of those sins. The thing is that I've been chatting to my children about this, this sort of reaction, and I sort of agree with them to some point. They say, look, it all sounds too easy, Dad. You know, you sin, and then you just confess it. 
and then what, Jesus forgives you? <laughs> As if nothing sort of ever happened? That is what verse 9 teaches us, though. That if we humbly agree with God that whatever sinful thing we have done is an affront to his holy character and confess this to him with a genuine desire to turn away, verse 9 tells us God will cleanse us and will forgive us. And why will God act this way? John says it's because of his character, because he is faithful and because he is just. In fact, if you look at it the other way, God would actually be unfaithful to his covenant promises and consequently unjust if he withheld forgiveness from us. It's remarkable. But each time we do confess our sins, we open ourselves up to the experience, the refreshing and undeserved forgiveness of God. As David exclaimed in Psalm 32 following his sin with Bathsheba where he says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's where they confess our sins whether we've done something once or we've done it a hundred times or a thousand times. And yet as well as confessing our sins, there's more to it than that. Because the gospel promises forgiveness to the one with a truly repentant heart and yet we still have to act on that. We need to grasp and accept the forgiveness from Jesus by faith. Uh, see, John says, verse 1 again, My dear children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the ESV says. Um, the NIV, he is the sacrifice of atonement, which is is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh, see, these verses highlight two things about Jesus, two particular aspects of the finished work of Jesus, of what Jesus has done and continues to do for us that allows us to be forgiven. Firstly, it says he advocates for us, and secondly, he propitiates or he atones uh, for us. Uh, first, he advocates, that is, he, he speaks to the Father in our defence. Jesus acts you know, as a solicitor, if you like, for us. Now, normally you're only sort of engaging solicitors if you've got a, a problem or need some help. You know, maybe you need a will written or some conveyancing done on the house you're going to buy or something. Um, funny, uh, when Sue and I moved from Brisbane to Sydney for Bible College before coming back here to, to North Pine, 
Um, we sort of, you know, put our furniture, got it uh, picked up, delivered, uh, and the furniture removal is going from Brisbane to Melbourne, but they're going to drop our things off in Sydney on the way. But we're down there waiting for the furniture to arrive that afternoon, and we get a phone call saying, oh, they decided that, in fact, it would be better for them to, to go to Melbourne first and then drop our stuff back to Sydney four or five days later, completely breaking the contract. And we're sitting here in an empty unit in Sydney. Uh, we're in a bit of strife. <laughs> we, uh, we needed a solicitor. <laughs> now, fortunately, my next brother is a solicitor in Sydney. <laughs> and he got on the phone. <laughs> I don't exactly know what he said, but he convinced them very quickly to turn their truck around. It was halfway to Melbourne. <laughs> and it turned up late that evening with some very grumpy removalists. <laughs> you know. Um, you see, Sue and I were, were unable to help ourselves. They weren't listening to me. They didn't care about the contract. They, I was a voice on the phone. Uh, we needed a solicitor. We needed an advocate to speak in our defence. And friends, our sin places us in deep trouble with God. And Jesus acts as our solicitor. But sort of Unlike my brother, Jesus doesn't need to get on the phone. Jesus doesn't even need to say anything. His mere presence with his Father is enough to secure a positive verdict from him. And why is Jesus' mere presence enough to guarantee forgiveness for us before the Father? Again, as verse 2 rapturously proclaims, he is the propitiation, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, what, is, what does that mean? What does it mean to atone for something? Well, simply to atone means that a, a person who has been wronged has their anger turned away because of some sort of uh, gift or offering. So just imagine one day I was sort of walking past our dining room table and I accidentally knock over Sue's favourite vase. That was a, a family heirloom and shatters on the floor. Uh, hypothetically speaking, of course. <laughs> uh, well, I know I'm in big trouble. <laughs> big trouble. Um, and that she's going to be angry with me because she's told me many times to be careful of the vase as I walk past the table. So what am I to do? Well, I quickly whip round to the florist and buy two dozen red roses. <laughs> and when she comes home, I immediately confess what I've done, but then present her with the roses quickly before she has too much of a chance to get angry with me. <laughs> and provided that she accepts my gift and doesn't throttle me, as sh she didn't, <laughs> then you know, I'll successfully in turning away her anger. <laughs> Um, the gift atoned for and made amends, at least in some way, for what I'd done. Uh, verse 2 tells us that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, or is the propitiation for our sins. That is, our sins have been cancelled and God's anger towards us has been turned away completely because an acceptable sacrifice has been made. So the Apostle John has in mind what used to go on sort of in the temple day in, day out in Jerusalem. Someone would sin... They'll then take a, a spotless animal, normally a, a baby lamb or a kid or a goat, take it down to the temple, they'll give it to the priest. 
they would then symbolically place their hands on the animal's head, sort of symbolically transferring their guilt onto that of the animal. The animal would have its throat cut and the sin would be atoned for through the shedding of blood. Great for the person, but a bit rough for the sheep. Well, how does this relate to Jesus? Well, ironically, not only is God angry with our sins, but he's provided the mechanism, he's provided the means by which that anger is appeased. And that was the death of his own son. Jesus was our sacrifice of atonement. He was the pure, spotless lamb of God who still took away the sins of the world. And when Jesus died on the cross as if all the sins... Of all God's chosen people, God's people, past, present and future, in a sense symbolically placed their hands on the head of Jesus and had their sin transferred to him. Friends, can you picture that? Your hands on Jesus' head as he was nailed there on the cross. And when he died, it was like that lamb being sacrificed by the priest. Death of Jesus has paid for our sins. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, he puts it this way. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. And so, friends, if if Jesus has made ongoing forgiveness for our sins possible, then we need to embrace the remedy for our problem. Let us confess our sins and through faith receive the forgiveness that Jesus' death has wrought us. We're not meant to. In fact, God doesn't want us to hold back accessing his mercy and grace, for he longs to extend it to us. I don't know if you've read the book, came out a year or two ago been uh, flogged off a fair bit in Kurong. It's called Gentle and Lowly, the Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. He puts it this way. He says, When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and in your sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deep wishes, not against them, We tend to think that when we approach Jesus for help in our need and mercy amid our sins that we somehow distract from him to lessen him, to impoverish him in some way. But Christ's heart, he says, is not drained by our coming to him. His heart, in fact, is filled up all the more as we come to him and draw on his promises by faith. And so, friends, as we conclude, in the words of Hebrews 4, for since we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but have one who has been tempted in every way, as we are and yet was without sin, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.
I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, the gospel sounds too good to be true. Particularly on our most sinful days. And yet it is true. Oh Father, fill your spirit. You help us to grasp hold of your promises and accept them by faith simply because they are your word. And Father, drink deeply of the forgiveness that Jesus' death brings for us. Through his adoning death we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.